this book called Resilient, written by John Eldridge, Restoring Your Weary Soul in These Turbulent Times. Uh, if you're looking to get the book, which I would highly recommend, and even in the audiobook, because the audiobook, uh, John Eldridge reads the book, and he does a lot of kind of side talking about what he has written. And so it's a really good uh, reading. And if you want to look it up, uh, it's uh, the cover of it looks like, not like this, it looks like that. Uh, so John Eldridge, Resilient. And it's been really, really good for my soul to do this book and to do the things that, uh, the practices, I guess, that are in this book. And the reason I did this series is a recap. So we know where we've been for six weeks. The reason we did this series, one, I, I think selfishly, is because I knew I needed it. Like my soul needed something like this to just recapture my heart for God. Um, and I looked around me and noticed that people needed this as well. Conversations I was having, things I was seeing online, I understood this is a real deal. And so as a part of this series and the book, what he's talked about, some of the things that we've talked about are this, like the idea that we're, we've got Eden kind of built into us, right? He says that Eden is the, the ideal state, and there's that, that hunger inside of us for wanting better or wanting things to be good again is something that God put there, and it's been there since the beginning. And during COVID, I remember hearing a lot of people say that. I wish things could just get back to normal. I wish things could just be good again. And he talks about that in his book a lot. And he also talks about the fact that because Eden is in our heart and we want that perfect, we want everything to be good, uh, he said that there's unfortunately the reality that we live in the desolation, right? We see death, we see sin, we see other people's choices and sins that wreck our lives sometimes, right? They do real damage to us and sometimes our sins likewise do real damage to other people. And so he says because of that, it's like we are weary, we are tired, like the, the desolation that we often see around us and it just chips away at us. And we just keep saying, oh, well, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I'm all set, I'm all set, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? And he says, but in the middle of that, what you see is our hearts still yearning for Eden. So we want the good things, and so we settle. What he says in his book, and what you see in Scripture, is that we settle for false Eden. So think about that. What is your false Eden that gives you that sense of it being good again? Is it something that you buy? Is it somewhere that you go? You know, is it your job? Uh, your car, your house, you know, there's a lot of things that these little tastes, is it renovating the house like 72 million Americans did during COVID, right? Like, what is it exactly that you're searching for? What false Eden? And that's a big issue in his book. What false Edens are we chasing after, looking for restoration of our souls? Now, I wanted to start today by making this very real. So, as I've been going through this series, I've been talking with people and hearing their stories about how this is landing in their life. So there was a guy that I started texting with, and he's in his mid-20s. He's about 25 years old. And he said, I'm really resonating with this series because I'm seeing it in my life. He said, uh, in his environment, he got out of the Marines not long ago, and he said, in, in his world, he's watching a lot of the guys that he served with that are now committing suicide. And he said, it's not because of combat trauma either. Some of these guys just feel absolutely hopeless. Like, they don't feel like there's any good, like there's any hope for the future. And he said just two weeks ago, a friend he graduated high school with, a girl 25 years old, took her life because she felt totally hopeless. And he said as he talks to more people that are in his circle, he realizes, again, that how this is really, this sense of hopelessness isn't just in suicide. It's like, I don't want to have kids. Like, antinatalism is a big deal. People think it's immoral to bring a child into this world. It's a really, really hopeless way to see the world. 
But that's reality for some people. They're like, it's just, it's too wicked. It's too bad. It's never going to get better. And so they don't want to have kids. So this is having like real world implications. And you can see this in the U.S., man, our birth rate is going way down, like scary down. And so it's like, this is exploding. And this guy who's like having a family himself, looking at his peers, and they're literally dying from hopelessness. They're literally giving up on a future and a life because of hopelessness. And so then he talks about like just, again, the, his, his efforts to try to reach out to his peer group. Like, how do I help these people? Because he feels like just calling people or sending a letter are things that aren't like cool anymore. Like who calls anybody anymore, right? And so he's like not sending texts. He's actually trying to call people and go visit them because he says, I think we desperately need community. And, and it's like, what, what can I do to help my generation is what he's crying out and what he's saying. And then he finished this text chain back and forth. This was over like a couple different days. And he says, I'm so glad to be part of a church community. And I hope as, as we continue to heal as a family, because they've had some serious trauma lately. He said, as we continue to heal as a family, I can really build a tribe of lovers of Christ and community. So I don't want you to approach this series or see this series that we've been doing as some existential threat that's out there that we don't really need to worry about. Or it's like just theology or it's not real life. Like people in America, our young people especially, are really, really struggling. And, and he talks about it in this text. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that went back and forth. But he just says, we feel like we're connected because of social media. But he said, we're just getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And again, this is a guy that's just like, what do I do? How do I help my friends? And so... I want, though, I want you to, to hear that again. I'm so glad to be part of a church community, and I hope as we continue to heal as a family, I can really build a tribe of lover, lovers of Christ and community. So I tell you almost week in and week out, and I say it to myself almost week in and week out, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're watching, if you're here, that matters. You have the hope inside of you that Christ has given us. So whether you're a kid in middle school, a kid in high school, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, single, married, divorced, Whatever this pace of life that you're in, you need to understand that being a follower of Jesus is a real deal. The world doesn't need any more fakes, right? I think that's why what you're seeing happen in American Christianity especially, the crumbling that we've seen over the last few years is because what COVID did. It exposed a lot of false. It expo exposed a lot of fake, I think, in American Christianity. And so when Jesus says, I want you to follow me, it's because he's got the answer for what is killing us spiritually, emotionally, eternally. And so don't take that lightly because our world right now, just look at our country, look at the world, look at the Middle East. The world needs Jesus. Like The world needs Jesus. And, and again, it doesn't need more of the same. It needs something different. It needs something supernatural. And that's what we have. And that's why I wanted to start off with just something very real that our friend, he's seeing the desolation that Eldridge talks about. He's seeing people depending on false Edens and being left empty. Because that's what it is. It's like they're, they're buying into the, like this idea that if they could just have more and do more, that they'll be fine. The series also talked about thinking deeply about your relationship with God. Like to, to really, really, really lean into that. Uh, prayer has been a huge part of this. How do you have serious prayer? Not just, all right, Lord, I'm going to bring a few things to you. But like I've misunderstood for most of my adult life, I think really until this book, and I've really slowed down. I thought for most of my life it's just about like getting deeper with God means like going to this like quiet place and bringing all my prayer requests there. And that's not what deep prayer is. I've learned that prayer really is about relationship. Right? God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Right? Then Jesus repeats it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Like, so it starts with love and everything else goes. Obedience, following Him, 
loving others, courage, strength, all that stuff pours out of that initial relationship. And so I've learned through this series that God wants my heart first. And that's what it means to go and and drink deeply from that river and actually have the ability to restore my weary soul means that I can actually go to him and just say, Lord, I'm a wreck. I'm such a mess and I need your help right now. Right? But how will people know that if the people that are Christians aren't telling them? They're not pointing them that direction. We're just having this faith all of our own and not sharing that. Another big idea in light of all this is that when God takes you beyond your strength and your sanity, um, that's where you're going to meet him. Because at some point in your life, you probably mostly ever, no matter how young or old you are, you've noticed that your strength is going to give out on you, right? Your sanity is going to like slip away and your, like, your patience, like, and you're going to get beyond yourself. And what do you do when you get out of that abyss, right? And so here's some of the scripture we've covered during this series. Paul from First, or Second Corinthians chapter 1 says it like this. He said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia, which was intense, which was life-threatening. Then, he says, we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. So, if you've ever heard of that lie that God will never give you more than you can handle, you need to balance that against the truth of what God has said. Because this right here absolutely says God will give you more than you can handle. 100% that's going to happen. God will sometimes give it to you. Sometimes God will allow it. But you're going to be pushed beyond your own strength. And so when people misquote Scripture and say, well, God, don't worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's just trying to tell somebody, oh, it's not going to get that bad. When we all know life will get that bad, right? Your life will blow up sometimes. And it's just like, wow, what happened? Where did all this come from? And so this is what Paul's speaking from. But thankfully, because of his maturity in Christ and his relationship with Jesus, in spite of everything, he ends this passage by saying this. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But why? Why so bad? Why so... What does, he says, well, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's the real power is what Paul's saying. The same spirit, Paul also says, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you're a follower of Christ. Like, God, let me be pushed, Paul saying, beyond my limits so that I would understand that real strength doesn't come from me. And Paul was a pretty cocky dude, right? Like, when he first accepted Jesus, man, he was a Pharisee. He was smarter than everybody. He had status, everything, man. Paul had it going for him in that world back then. But he realized at the end of the day, man, I don't have enough strength. And so I have to lean on the Lord. And that's a mature Christian to be able to say that, to not say, why, God? Why? Why would you let this step into my life? Why are you doing this to me? He's just like, no, life is pretty tough. And I can't do it on my own. And you know how I can do it? You know how I can be beat almost to death several times and shipwrecked and all the other things that happen to him? It's because God's given me the strength to do this stuff. Right? That's a different way of looking at your problems. Now, what he's talking about, what he gets this from, is a verse we've already read from John 7 in this series. And this is Jesus. This is where Paul is getting this from. This is a promise. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So this is Jesus making the promise. Look, you put your faith in me. That's what being a Christian is. You put your faith in me, your hope for this life and the next. Once you do that, now there's going to be something different. There's a spirit that dwells deep within you, and that's where our resilience comes from. And Paul is just sharing his personal experience about this truth right here. But we've got to go looking for it. I know a lot of Christians who don't take Jesus seriously at all. He makes promises like this. We're told to come to him. We're, we're even, it's modeled for us in the Psalms. And yet, when we go through bad times or tough times, we just say, why me? Why is this happening to me? I don't want this to be happening. Why can't I just get out of this? Or we don't even, like, 
We don't even consider God in the process, but we got to be hungry for it. We got to be thirsty for the Lord, and that's what the psalmist has given us here from the Old Testament. Just like a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So it's available to us, but we actually have to lean into it because if we want to receive what the Bible promises, and I believe wholly because I've seen it in my life, I've seen it in other people that I love dearly, I've seen how they, they like you lean into this river of life that Jesus promises, this strength to endure. Like Jesus said in all of that discourse, Matthew 24, 25, he says, pray for a strength that endures. A kataskio in Greek, how it's recorded. A kataskio strength, which is a victorious strength. I want you to pray for not just a, the ability to win, but the fact that you will win. I want you to pray with that mindset, that this life is going to beat you up, but you can still be victorious. Man, that's a different way of handling our problems. But for so long, I think, as Christians, for whatever reason, this idea got into Christianity that, man, God's just going to bless you and everything's going to be fine. There's not going to be any pain or suffering. And then when real life happens, we're like, well, God must not be, be real then. Because I've always been told that life will be good and God wants to bless me and He wants me to be rich. And, you know, I'm not rich and I'm not blessed. My back hurts. My car broke down. And Jesus is like, yeah, just like I said it would. Right? But I'll give you strength in the midst of all that, right? So knowing Scripture, knowing the promises is huge. So we got to stay focused if we really want resilience. That's what today's all about. So here's an awkward story I want to read to you. So Jesus says, he's talking in, about end times. He's like, okay, when things start to get crazy at the end, so right now we're seeing things get crazy, right? And most of human history has. But for our generations, it's like, okay, we've got our economy going crazy. We've got world politics going crazy. We've got the weather going insane all over the world. We've got war again in the Middle East, which what's going to happen with that? Is Iran going to get pulled? All these things. You can worry yourself to death about all that stuff. The atrocities that Hamas is committing, and then everything that is going to be retaliated against them is going to be horrific as well. So, I mean, it's awful what's happening. So please make sure you're praying for that part of the world, because that part of the world especially matters to God, deeply matters to God, right? And just the people at the end of the day anyway. But he's saying when all this kind of stuff is going on, that's when we need to really make sure we're focused. And Jesus is talking about end times, and he's saying when all that's happening, here's the advice that he gives. Remember Lot's wife. That's a very random thing to say. Why would Jesus say remember Lot's wife? So you may remember this story. It's in Genesis 19, but I want to read out of chapter 10 in this book. His son is writing a book where he's telling stories and he's fleshing out details so that when you read these stories, it's like you're getting the crunchy sound of the sand and rocks under their sandals and you're, you're feeling the emotion. You're seeing the sweat drip down the face. Like he, so he's, he's retelling these stories in a book that he's writing just to like really flesh these stories out and help us understand it. And he did that with Job and, so, and his wife and everything that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. So I wanted to read that account. And what I want to ask you to do, because it's like, okay, Jesus, remember Lot's wife. Well, why? What's going on? I want you to like, just let your imagination go and just try to picture all the details that he's bringing out in this. It's called She Looked Back. The angels had arrived in the evening. Lot saw them first, appearing way out on the plain with long shadows in front of them. Tall and lordly they seemed, with faces of judgment. There was no mistaking what they were. Lot ran out to greet them and bowed. Please, he begged, my lords, come, come quickly to my house. Because there was no other safe place. The angels declined, but Lot argued, he beseeched, he begged, and in the end, the angels agreed. So Lot led them back by secret ways. 
through the city of Sodom. This is it, he said to his visitors. He pointed at a mud brick house and pushed the angels through the door. Sit down, he urged. He kicked some dirt off the rug. Eat. And he wrung his hands nervously as he looked for his wife. He shut the windows then and barred the door. But someone had already seen. And the word went out. Lot had visitors with faces like God's. And the men of the city formed a mob and came pounding at the door. They called to Lot to hand over the angels, and he refused. The pounding ensued, and he offered up his daughters. There was a fight at the door, and one of the angels raised an arm and struck the whole crowd blind. And he drew Lot inside. Lot, Lot blinked until he saw the angel's face. Lot, the angel said, is there anyone else that you need to get out? Any family? He searched Lot's face. Confusion. Lot, we're here to destroy the town. How strange his face had looked. How stern and secure and unmistakably right. How unlike a human face. Lot shook himself awake. He says, uh, my daughters, my daughters are engaged, he stammered. Get them now, the angel commanded. And Lot tried. He ran through the streets, past men and women with feral, hungry looks all the way to his daughter's fiancé's homes. He pounded on their doors, and they appeared with sleep in their eyes and angry expressions. Lot urged and begged and pleaded and cried, but the men would not come. They didn't believe him. Lot left them, leering in the doorway. His daughters hid their eyes when he told them the news. Go, now, the angel said. Go to the hills. But Lot stopped. He looked sideways at his wife. She wouldn't like that. Please, Lot dared to ask. There's a town nearby. Look, it's not any significant place. There's no trouble at all. Just let us go there. And the angel consented. Go swiftly. Do not look back. I cannot do anything until you are away. And so Lot ran. He left the town and the things he had seen, the pride, the death, the vanity. He ran headlong out into the desert with his family dragging behind him. He ran up the road and then out into the plain with fatigue in his eyes and dust swirling everywhere. Not much further, he rasped over and over again. Look, we're almost there. Until at last, the sky turned gray and the sun came up and Zoar was in front of him, little more than just a well in a stable. Lot slowed and limped. Zoar, he panted. He squeezed his daughter's hands. We're here. And he stepped ahead, but then abruptly stopped. Because with a roar like a huge shrieking eagle, the first stone hit. Lot pulled his daughters down, shouting for his wife. The sky blazed with fire, putting strange shadows on the ground, and contrails of smoke divided the clouds. Lot had a daughter under each arm, and he reached up desperately trying to find his wife. The ocean sizzled and burned, and in the heat, hard winds of salt and rocks scraped the hills. Get down! Lot screamed. He spread himself out to shield his daughters from the punishing heat. But in the cities of suffering, the brick walls turned to dust, and the pots melted to glass, and the fields burned away, and salt lay over it all. The fire was hot, hot as the surface of the sun. The dirt petrified, and in a moment, it was all done. Huge black clouds of smoke rose up toward the tents of Abraham. Lot lifted his head. He turned. And suddenly his face was still. 
There was his wife with her hands outstretched, but not to him, to Sodom. Lot stood. His wife was hard and still and white as bone. He touched her arm and crumbled away. Salt. Because she had looked back. Yikes, Jesus. That's an intense story. And that's what he says to remember. Remember Lot's wife? Why? Why would he tell us to do that? What's, what's in that story? So there's a couple things that, to be able to pull out of that, to look specifically at these verses will help us understand. Because I remember for a long time being like, all right, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal just to like glance back over your shoulder, right? I mean, to be running for your life and hear all this going on and then you look back, is like, is, that seems harsh. And so I began to look at this passage and I was like, all right, what's going on with this? So, uh, and Genesis 17, like I said, this is where this story comes from. And here's two verses I want to look at. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives, don't look back. That phrase, don't look back, comes from a Hebrew word, nabat, because the Old Testament written in Hebrew. And that's not just a glance. That means not only to consider something, but actually be dependent on it. And so the, the issue here, and the reason Jesus brings it back up in the New Testament, is because she didn't, again, just glance back. She was struggling between trusting God with the unknown ahead and looking back to what she knew. Her security didn't come from God and from what was ahead. Her security came from the toxicity of her past. And that's a real human issue. Like, I've got all these unhealthy ways of thinking. I've got all these unhealthy sinful habits, perhaps. I've got really, really toxic friends or family members, but it's all I know. And so my loyalty is divided. The issue that Jesus is getting at when he says, remember Lot's wife, is this right here, is that she didn't just glance back, but like us, we tend to look back in our past. We tend to look back at things and find our security there. We tend to find our strength there and not in the Lord. And so a few verses later, in 19, verse 26, but Lot's wife did look back and became a pillar of salt. And that Hebrew word there is netzid. So it could be pillar, but it's also military, garrison, deputy, or officer. So it was like she was standing guard as a monument to her disobedience. So there's actually like a very poetic part of this, that she literally was a monument to her divided loyalty and to her lack of trust. So that's what's going on. That's why this is such an intense story and why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Because what is he getting us to wrestle with? Loyalty and trust. Because Jesus is telling us that, look, if you really want resilience that I offer, that I promise you, your eyes have to be pretty fixed. Your eyes have to be pretty focused on this, this spirit that I've put inside you. Once you become a follower of Jesus, he said, I give you my spirit. And Paul says it dwells deep within us. So are we going to look to the Lord or are we going to look to our past? So that's the issue. That's the heaviness. Because what he says in Luke 17, again, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. So I'm, I'm going to give you everything, Lord. And Jesus' brother James says the same thing. In James chapter 1, he says, Look, if you need wisdom, ask the Lord, and he'll give it to you graciously. But in verses 6 to 8, he says, You better not have divided loyalty, because if you do that, you're like a wave that's tossed by the ocean. People like that shouldn't expect anything, because they're not really putting their trust in the Lord, is what James is saying. It's like, I need you a little bit, but I'll take care of the rest. That's the issue that he's talking about. 
And this week, I had, um, I had, no, last week, I had an interesting conversation with a, a local area principal. And we were just talking about life and talking about kids. We we're kind of all over the place. And he's been in the school system since 97 in one form or fashion. And he's saying there's all these changes that he's seen. And, you know, just kind of wrestling with, you know, like, as a school, how do we help kids do some of these things that we're seeing? And then I began to talk a little bit about the series. And I said, yeah, this is something I've been thinking about as well. Because for so long, adults have given children the idea that they just need to follow their hearts. That they need to be true to themselves and live their own truth. And that their happiness and comfort really is paramount in this life. That there shouldn't be any suffering. That if there's suffering, something is wrong. Right? And so our kids are growing up with that mindset and then being picked on by older people who gave them that same mindset. And it's like, all right, so how do we help them through? How do we help them understand that this is not it? And what I said, for me, what I've, what I've seen in my own life and me personally, and what I've seen in other people is that when we walk down that lonely road of my happiness is paramount, my comfort is paramount, my truth and my heart and my happiness are really the most important thing in the world, that's going to leave you very alone at the end of a very lonely road. Because you're going to cut out everybody else in your life that doesn't line up with your happiness, right? If they don't agree with you, think about what's happening politically to us. We're just cutting people out. And we don't know how to argue anymore. We don't know how to disagree. We don't know how to do a lot of things anymore because, well, hey, if you're not in line with my happiness, my truth, my whatever, I'm cutting you out. I'm literally going to cancel you in my life. That, that's what we're living in. That's why there's so much tension. And so it's like, okay, so how do we get back to a place as Christians of rejecting that lie and saying that's just going to lead to loneliness. Like that's, all, that's the only place that that goes. And that's what we're seeing right now. So many people feeling lonely and isolated. Because it's, it's just about me. And the end of that road, man, that's, that's a dangerous place to go. But the thing that I think hits most strongly for a Christian is, like, it's this quote here for, out of his book. He says in chapter 10, divided loyalty in a Christian betrays the idea that your security is not really with God. And I read that first, and I was like, man, that's hard. That's a heavy hit there. But I realize it's true. When I look at my own life, and I look at myself for answers, or I look at my relationship with my wife, or my kids, or I look at my job as a pastor, or I look at how my team is doing in Little League baseball, right? And I start like, that, and I can feel like, oh man, this reflects on me. You know, like my kid's not doing good. If something's not going well, and it's like, then I realize, okay, I'm just making this all about me. And I'm making my relationship maybe with my wife all about me. And I have a loving wife that will call me out when I do these things, right? That's why it's important to have a good woman in your life, guys. She'll call you out, right? But when I, when I lean into my own strengths and I make things all about me, that's really what I'm saying there. And I was like, yep, man, that's true. And so as an antidote to that, an antidote to that, he says, as a Christian, you need to be single-hearted. You need to really be focused on the Lord in a way that changes who you are. Because that's hard. It's hard to trust the Lord when your life is awful. Right? Even though it's when we need it most, it's hardest to do it. So, here's a quote from his book. Again, here's something else he says. This whole quote's profound. He said, if you want to become a wholehearted person, you must reach the point where happily, lovingly, you give absolutely everything to God. That's a prayer that he teaches us. Lord... I give you absolutely everyone and everything. God, I cannot control everyone, and I can't control everything. So, Lord, I'm giving it to you. 
because uh, I know you can handle it and I can't, right? That idea, like, where you're trusting the Lord with everything in your life. Lord, I don't know if I'm going to have this job. I don't know what's going to happen to my parents. I don't know what's going to happen to my sister, my brother. I don't know what's going to happen to my kids, my, you know, on and on and on. I just don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust you with it. Even if it involves suffering, God, I'm still going to give you everything. That's a huge step to take. And then he says, you make Jesus at your everything. You make him your all in all. Not only is this the fulfillment of your heart's destiny, right? That's what we were created for was that relationship. But it's also the source of all recovery and resilience. And his last line here hit hard for me. He said, nothing can be taken from you because you've already surrendered everything. You've gotten to a point in your life where you really do trust the Lord with everything. So if you lose something, if something's taken away, if there's a tragedy, a trauma, a crisis, it's like, all right, Lord, I've already trusted you with that. So this hurts. This is awful. This is painful. But I know that I've already given it to you. That's real mature Christianity. That's, this is not an easy place to get to, but this is what we're called to because this is the world that we live in. But all these things, though, Eldridge talks almost every chapter, all these things are always kind of under the banner. Like, is this really the end? Like, are we nearing the end of, like, of human history here? Like, what's going on? And there's a lot of people that are worried, especially through COVID. There were so many different ideas and theories and everything, and I got everybody all worked up. But here's my advice for you. If this is the end, it doesn't matter. Because your life should look the same either way. That's what we have in Scripture. You're supposed to be faithfully loving God, faithfully taking responsibility for those that are in your circle, loving them, sharing the hope of Christ with people. And it might just be like, hey, can I pray with you right now? That's such an awkward thing to do. Like, really, it is. Like, if you have somebody you know is not a Christian, and you're like, hey, let me pray for you right now. Most times, like nine out of ten times, people would have said yes to me. But I can tell, like, they don't know what to do. You know, like, do I, do I cross myself? Do I put my hand somewhere? Like, they don't know what to do sometimes, you know, because it's an awkward thing to do. Nobody ever says that. But that's a way to share the love of Christ. So if we're nearing the end, man, put your faith in Jesus, share the love of Jesus, stand on truth, but don't freak out. Matthew 24, 6, the world's going crazy. And then Jesus stops to say, but don't freak out, right? There's truth in that. So if we're nearing the end, man, we should be living the same no matter what. But what I have noticed, and when I read that part of the book, I wanted to share something where my mind went. Because I don't know about you, you know, when I read stuff, my mind's going all over the place. And when I read this section of the book, and he talked about how sometimes we need to understand that we're going to go through really hard things, right? That the, the end of time, it seems, in Scripture, is going to be a very difficult time, but there's something beautiful on the other side of that. Paul, living his earthly life, there were these really difficult things that I went through, but just on the other side of it, God met me in it, He got me through it, and I, just, I got to see my faith grow, my trust grow. And because we're all going to have these crucibles of life. So when I read this chapter of the book, and this section of the book specifically, it made me think about boot camp for me. So, uh, in the Marines, when you go to boot camp, you're there for three hours. They're teaching you to bake cookies and sing Kumbaya, and there's all kinds of fun little arts and crafts that we do while you're there in boot camp, right? And at the end of it, after they prepared you to do all this stuff, you have to go through the crucible, which is kind of now famous, right? They didn't always have it, but it's a 54-hour window of time at the end of boot camp. Now, mind you, they've been prepping you for three months to get you ready. So, over this 54-hour span of time, you're going to hike about 45 miles, and you're going to be doing night and day combat exercises. You're going to get just a handful of hours of sleep and about a meal and a half, maybe not quite, of food to eat over that period of time. And so they're, they're doing all these things to help you figure out how do I think clearly and do very complex teamwork exercises 
and get punched in the face and get shot at? How do I do all those things when I feel like I'm starving, my body's running on nothing, and I'm not getting any sleep? How do you operate in the fog of war, essentially, is what that is supposed to be, right? So you go through all this stuff, and at the end of it, you're like, oh, my gosh, it's finally all over. Because it's, it's hard, right? But you've been training for three months. But then you've got this nine-mile hike back to the parade deck. And everything that I thought was hard before that was not, as it turned out. Because that, that march, man, your legs, they're done by this time, right? You're emotionally spent. You're exhausted physically. And your legs are rubbery. And then about a mile into this hike, your feet feel like they're literally on fire. I remember thinking, my boots have got to be on fire. Like, I swear, Jesus, my boots are on fire. I remember thinking that because my feet were so wrecked. And I was like, oh. But then you make the hike. And not everybody makes the hike back. But you get there. Up to this point in boot camp, the Marines are weird this way. They don't let you say I in boot camp. You have to literally call yourself this recruit. It's the stupidest thing ever at first. But then you realize... Oh, it's because they're trying to tear away this old identity that I used to have. There's not me anymore. There's not I. There's not even us. I have to say dumb things like these recruits. You know, everything's in third person when you're in boot camp. And so I did lots of push-ups. I got really strong learning how to talk in the third person, right? Because they're trying to teach you something so that when you're, again, in that fog of war, you're not thinking I. You're thinking us, right? There's something different that happens to you. Now, the cool thing is when you finally get to the end of that march, you know that you're finally going to be able to call yourself a Marine. So what they do is that you get there, and the company commander's there, and he's all fresh because he's not been doing anything, right? He's just got, like, you know, he's perfectly pressed. And you get there, the platoon, they, you get all uh, formed up around the Iwo Jima monument, you know, the whole, like, the famous flag. And then you all are around that, and the company commander says, drill instructors, gives these men their eagle globe and anchors, which is the symbol of the, or the, symbol of the Marine Corps, and make them United States Marines. And right there, it's like, there's no pain, there's nothing. And so what happens, you know what I'm talking about. And what happens is they come around, and I still have mine, and they get, this is the Eagle Golden Anchor, the emblem of the Marines, and they come around one by one, and this drill instructor that for three months has been trying to murder you every chance he gets, right? I hated my drill instructors, right? Because I was supposed to. But now all of a sudden we're buddies, right? We're pals. Like he's coming up, shaking everybody's hand, congrats, yeah. And then, but what happens though? Puts this in your left hand. You look him right in the eye, he shakes your hand, and he says, congratulations, Marine. Welcome to the United States Marine Corps. Man, there's no feeling quite like that. Tears, grown men, right? We're, we're all battle-hardened, tough Marine recruits, right? But you're all bawling your eyes out, right? But what I realized, though, that like, that's a lot like life. As I thought about this book and this series, that's a lot like life. We've got all these crucibles that we're going to have to go through. And God has been, just like the Marines, God has been preparing you but some recruits didn't really prepare themselves well, and so they did not make the hike. That's, that's an awful feeling to be left behind, right, as everybody else goes ahead because you've been slacking off for three months, right? And so God has actually been preparing us. He's given us in his word ways to meet these crucibles head on and be victorious. That's why he says in that Olivet Discourse, pray for victorious strength. Pray for that catastio strength because hard times are going to come but I want you to know that there's this John 7, this deep well, this deep river within you of life that you have access to. And I know, and I know without a doubt, what I experienced on that day is going to pale in comparison. Because here's my hope for you if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're watching, if you're here in the room, that one day when you meet your Savior, you're not going to hear, congratulations, Marine. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Like, that's what you're going to get to hear from Jesus as he looks you in the eyes and says, yeah, I was preparing you, and you put in the work, and you dove deeply into the river of life that I promised you, 
and you made it through the crucibles. Because we, in our culture, want to miss the crucibles. We want to sidestep the crucibles. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Pray for a strength that's victorious so you can meet him head on. That's the Jesus that we follow. That's what he promises us. And I think that's a huge part of what we're seeing today is this, man, we're, we want to miss these crucibles. We want to sidestep. And we don't understand. And Jesus is like, no, it's just going to be tough. But I'm going to give you the strength to get through it. So here's some of the principles I, I want to take away and just kind of leave you with from the book to close. So if we want this resilience that's promised to us, we rearrange our lives to center around God so that we can actually take hold of the strength that prevails. Two, we remember lost wife, loyalty, loyalty to Jesus. Third, we dive deeply into our innermost being where Ephesians tells us, where Jesus tells us the Spirit dwells, right? For a follower of Jesus Christ, we dive into that innermost being and find the God who gives resilience because His resilience is not going to fail us. Your strength will. Your sanity is going to you know, waffle back and forth. But His resilience is not going to fail you. And this is the idea here I started off this series with. When you take, when life takes you, when God allows you to go beyond your abilities, beyond your sanity, beyond your strength, God will absolutely meet you there. But you have to truly commune with Him. Right? You have to be doing this work in your heart to meet those crucibles with the strength that Jesus provides, that Jesus actually says is available. But will you? That's the big question I've been left with myself personally. Okay, it's available to me, but will I, will I drink deeply? Or will I just be like, no, I'll do it myself and just keep down the same pattern, just like Lot's wife, turning back to the same old thing. So I want to leave you with two practical things. First, again, I invite you to download this app. The One Minute Pause, no matter what app store you have, it's called the One Minute Pause by Ransom Heart Ministries, and in that app is the 30 Days to Resilient. It's guided prayers through Scripture twice a day. It will teach you, literally, how do I pray through Scripture? How do I meditate in a way that allows me to cut out distractions and really, really learn how to drink from the river of life that Jesus offers us? Because your life's going to fall apart at some point or another, and you want to be ready for when it does. That's basically what he's saying. All right, and then secondly... A model prayer from his book, Chapter 10. Uh, we've ended every Sunday of this series going through one of these prayers because we're trying to model what this looks like to do this stuff, to drink deeply from the well. So I'm going to read this, and then Darren and Brittany are going to come back. I know Leighton and Brittany are going to come back up, and they're, she's going to sing this song, I Surrender All. It's an old hymn, but it goes perfectly with what we've been talking about this whole series. So as I pray these words, they'll be up on the screen. The song will be up on the screen. Uh, just let these words just kind of wash over you. And then when you, if you want to sing, you know, obviously, yes, sing. So here's a prayer. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, God of all creation, God of the thunderstorm and the waterfall, I need your strength. I need the strength that prevails. I don't want to fall away. I don't want to lose heart. I choose you, Jesus, above all things. I give you my allegiance, my undivided love. I choose single-heartedness toward you, Lord Jesus. Body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, and will. I pray for a supernatural resilience, God. Fill me with your overcoming strength, a victorious strength. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, strengthen me. I pray for strength of mind, strength of heart, strength of will. I pray for the strength that allows me to escape all that's coming against the saints in this hour. 
fill me, Lord, with resilience. By faith, I receive it, and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name.